Will you join me in prayer this morning? Lord, we thank you for the gift of your holy word. And as we think on these things, open our hearts and our minds to hear you. Amen. Today we continue our discussion of the spiritual practices that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jordan taught us about the importance of giving with the right heart, a heart motivated by the desire to please the Father and not focused on impressing others. Dennis taught us about the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, with, his focus, with its focus on God's agenda, not ours. Its goal is to place our hearts in alignment with God and His purposes. And in the process, the Holy Spirit will radically transform our intentions, outlooks, desires, and goals. We will be transformed as we become more fully apprentices of Jesus. This morning, I would like to discuss with you the third part of the triad of spiritual practices that Jesus, our great spiritual director, teaches us in these passages. And that's the topic of fasting. At the time of Jesus, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting were part of the Jewish spiritual practices. It was expected that a pious Jew would give, pray, and fast. We read in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus was even chided by John's disciples and the Pharisees because his disciples were not fasting. In response to this reprimand, Jesus says to them, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Jesus, our bridegroom, has ascended to the Father and sits at his right hand, and now his followers should fast. As we heard in our reading today from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. And he says twice in this passage, when you fast. This is not a question, but a statement. It is a given that they, and by implication we as followers of Jesus, will practice this spiritual discipline. Now traditionally, fasting is defined as a temporary deprivation of sustenance, the giving up of food and drink for a period of time. In Jesus' day, pious Jews would also give up washing their clothes, their faces, and abstaining from sex during their fasts. And at the time of Jesus, the stricter Pharisees fasted twice a week. In the Old Testament, we see the people often fasting as a way to display penitential mourning in the hopes of averting the judgment or the wrath of God. In the law, the only required fast was on the Day of Atonement, what is today called Yom Kippur. But after the exile, four other annual fasts were observed by the Jews. As we see from the passages in Matthew, the issue with fasting as Jesus sees it is not the act, but the heart. These voluntary fasts provided opportunities for outward religious showmanship, so the participants could gain a reputation for piety. The point is not that there was no genuine contrition, but that these hypocrites were purposely drawing attention to themselves and not to God. They wanted the praise of other people, and they got it. But that's all they received. 
Jesus calls them hypocrites because the heart that should should motivate all spiritual disciplines, including fasting, is a hunger for God. Fasting is a way to reveal to ourselves and then to confess to God what is in our hearts. Where do we find our deepest satisfaction? In God or his gifts? In fasting, we learn to rely less on food and more on God. When we fast, it is not a meritorious act in the eyes of God. We are not justified by our actions. Rather, we practice a spiritual discipline to fall more deeply in love with God, desiring to know God more should be our goal. In the last three weeks, we have heard sermons on giving and prayer and now fasting. But it would be wrong to look at these spiritual disciplines in isolation. Jesus places these disciplines together as a way to teach his disciples that there is an essential connection between them. We give, pray, and fast because they are an expression of a hunger to fall more deeply in love with God. So how should we rightly align ourselves and our motives when we fast? The prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and that Dennis so eloquently expounded upon last week, is a good start. Let me refresh our memories. In this prayer, there are three longings that we are to hope for from God. That God's name be hallowed and revered. That God's kingdom come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These three petitions will tell us whether all things we long for are expressions for our hunger for God, or whether we are more enamored by the praise of others. If our motivation for fasting is to develop a deeper knowledge of God, then we, unlike the Pharisees, will have the correct mindset. Regularly choosing God over food with the right motive can over time create a renewed sense of community with the Trinity that will be expressed in a transformed desire to reach out to others. This is because we have in the process of properly practicing this spiritual discipline of fasting, we are becoming more closely aligned with the will of God. I think we can see what this would look like from God's perspective in Isaiah 58. Obviously, Jesus was very familiar with the teachings in this chapter. And I believe that we can rightly deduce that he had this perspective in mind when he taught on fasting from the Gospels. In the first part of this passage from Isaiah, God calls the prophet to address the people's faulty religious observance of fasting. They are not worshiping God in spirit or in truth. The problem with their fasting is that they are not doing so out of a true devotion for God, but out of a selfish reason of trying to gain a quid pro quo with God. They are trying to manipulate God through their religious observance. And because of this faulty attitude, their outward actions are condemned. The motivation of their hearts during their fasting was not bearing spiritual fruit. If we love God, then we will also love those whom God loves, our neighbors. As Jesus taught in Mark, the greatest commandment is 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Our increased love for God that can arise from the proper motivation and expressed in our giving, our praying, and fasting should radically transform us to love our neighbor. And this love for God and our neighbor will be manifested, as Isaiah says, by taking concrete steps to alleviate injustice, to care for those in need, the hungry, the stranger, the poor, the homeless, and the naked. Isaiah in the 58th chapter contrasts false and ineffective fasting with the true type of fasting God wants from his people. Isaiah proclaims, Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not taken the commandments forsaken the commandments of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager to God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? In this passage, the prophet rebukes the people for not having the right motivation of their religious observance. They have not been faithful because they are just simply going through the motions. There is no change of heart that comes as a result of seeking God's will on earth, as it is in heaven. They think that their fasting is pleasing to God and that he will reward their actions, but they have not acted justly or mercifully, nor are they walking humbly with their God. Rather, they are hypocritical and self-absorbed, and ironically, they ask for righteous judgments without even realizing that if God was to give them these just decisions, they would be found wanting. Isaiah continues in his indictment of the people. He states, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for the people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head in the, like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast? A day of acceptable to the Lord? In this passage, the fasting of the people does not create a greater love for God or their neighbor. God is looking at the condition of their hearts and ignoring their outward religious observance. They have not been transformed by the spiritual discipline of fasting because they have not placed it in its proper motivation to grow in their love of God and by extension to grow in their love for their neighbor. The result of their fasting is abuse of others, strife, anger, and violence not love, peace, and joy. So how should the people of God rightly respond to spending time learning to love God and others through the spiritual discipline of fasting? 
Isaiah tells us what God wants from those who love him and seek his will on earth as it is in heaven. He says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. We see here that fasting should transform us. As we seek to know God more fully, we will change. You cannot grow closer to the Almighty God without expecting to be different as a result of the interaction. And when we focus on God and take our eyes off ourselves, we will begin to see the needs of others more clearly. We will begin to view them as God does. And with our hearts changed, we will come to seek justice for those who have only experienced injustice. We will seek to feed the hungry, assist the homeless, clothe the naked. And we will do this not for some cultural social justice agenda, but because we love God and our neighbor. If we do these things out of a transformed heart that desires to grow closer to God, then he promises to respond accordingly. Isaiah tells us this in the next passage. If we do these things, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and the Lord will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing of fingers and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always, he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Sounds as if it's an expanded statement of, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. We have seen today that the proper motivation for fasting is not about changing God's mind, but about our heart. Through seeking to know more about God, we will personally tr be transformed. And that includes our attitudes, our bias, our perceptions, and our desires. We will begin to see things as God does. And we will become a mirror to reflect God's love, mercy, and compassion to a hurting world, torn apart by the sins of hate, injustice, and indifference. We will develop a desire to make a difference in our world, to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I offer these observations today in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.